0: Well, friends, I want to speak to you today in relation to some of the issues that we've been confronted with and aware of in the world at large. And in order to do so, I want to invite you to turn back to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to read some of that same story that we read last week. But we're going to look at it from a completely different angle today. It's in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 35 to verse 45. The verses or the scripture is uh, in the text below the video on YouTube and also below the video on the website. You're welcome to look there. If you uh, want to browse the website, you can go to esv.org and just type in Mark chapter 10 in the search bar. Let me read to you. It It says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, this is to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And he was referring there to the metaphor of what it was to drink the wrath of God when he would go to the cross. He would drink the cup to the dregs. He would be baptized in that he would go... He would would enter into the grave. He would enter into death instead of us. He's talking about his coming suffering on behalf of mankind. He says, can you suffer as I've suffered? And they said to him, "We we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And we know that James and John, like all the apostles, suffered immensely in order to make the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ known in the world. James was, in fact, martyred and put to death. John experienced exile and died an old man, but died having suffered his fair share of suffering on account of the gospel. And it says, when the ten, the other apostles, heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. I want to focus today on those last verses, what Jesus describes to them as a kind of manifesto of his kingdom rule. Last week, when we looked at this story, we did so through the lens of personal ambition. And we looked at what was going on in James and John's hearts in terms of their own desire to have power and to be glorified at the right and left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week... I want to consider this story again, but I want to consider it through the lens of power and the lens of oppression. And the reason why I want to look at it in that way is because you have to understand that that is the context into which this conversation takes place. The gospel is clear that Jesus came for the purpose of undoing the oppressions that we see in the world. In Luke chapter 1, when Mary is singing or this kind of poem, what's called the Magnificat, as she's pregnant with Jesus, one of the things that she celebrates about the coming of this baby is what he will accomplish on earth. And she says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. A little later, or a number of years later, when Jesus is a grown man, and he preaches for the first time, it would seem, in his home synagogue, the one he grew up in. At least at the inauguration of his own preaching ministry, he turns up in the synagogue among his own friends and villagers, and he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah towards the very end of the scroll. and He finds the place in which this is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was Christ's mission. And so when you are reading this strange conversation in which the disciples ask Jesus about their own place within his coming rule, you have to understand their request, not just through the lens of personal ambition, and I think that is part of it, but also as the voice and the cry of oppressed men, They're giving voice to their longings, their deepest longings, given the fact that they are among the Jewish people and they have experienced nothing but oppression for millennia on account of the nations that surrounded them. And they have this growing anticipation and excitement that soon Jesus will rule and we will rule with him. Now, The reason why I want us to think of this is because here in the answer that Jesus gives to his apostles on this occasion, the answer that he gives to them really answers their vision and what they think that he's there to do and the way in which they think he's there to do it. And actually, he contradicts their expectations. He shows them that his path is a very different path to the one that they expect him to fulfill. They think that he has come to overthrow the powers of this world through a political revolution and to impose the law of God on the nations and they'll get to rule with him. And what he does is he shows that Christ's way is a very different way from the way that we've expected or anticipated. And this is as relevant today as it was then in terms of shaping our thinking about the work of Christ in the world. What is it that Christ has come to do? And how does he... anticipate doing it what is his promise for how he promises to overcome oppression in this world this is what we need to ask ourselves and especially in the lights of recent events the death of George Floyd and the consequent riots and the protests and the anger that has arisen what should we as Christians think feel and do what is our hope in the light of what is happening in this world and I want to show you four things that come out of this, these lines that Jesus articulates, which perfectly encapsulate the Christian mission, the Christian vision, and the Christian hope. Here's the first thing. Jesus begins by diagnosing the real problem, the root problem of the oppressions that we see in the world. And he does so when he points to the reality of this oppression all around. And he says in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is something that these men, the disciples, had experienced personally, the brutality of Roman soldiers, the fact that their nation was subject to another nation. They'd experienced it personally. And the question we need to ask is, why is Jesus pointing to this reality as it exists in the world? And it is not because Jesus is against power and authority in and of themselves. He was no anarchist. In fact, Jesus described his own life as submitted to the will of the father. And he also then said that the father had given him all, all authority in heaven and on earth. And the call of the gospel is the call to submit and to surrender to the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. Power and authority are a good thing. But the reason why Jesus points to this is because he wants us to understand how authority is corrupted and becomes oppressive and abusive within the systems of this world. And he uses a word here, which helps us understand what he's talking about. It's a Greek word, kati katakurievum, which occurs only three times in the New Testament. Here, it occurs elsewhere in 1 Peter 5, where Peter tells the elders not to dominate over the church, not to rule it in this way. And it occurs in Acts 19, and there the story is of a man who's full of demons. And these seven Jewish men, the sons of Sceva, the high priest, come and they try to cast out the demons from this man in the name of Jesus. And the demonized man replies and says to them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And then says, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered them all. There it is, katakurievo, the same word, lorded it over them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. There we have a vivid and graphic depiction of what this word means. It means mastering brutally people who you can have power over. So when we witness on the news a white cop, Derek Chauvin, kneeling on the neck of a black man, George Floyd. What we are witnessing is what Jesus is describing here. We're witnessing one man using his power to lord it over another man. We're seeing the domination, the brutal domination, the way that power gets corrupted in the human heart. Jesus put his finger on it and says, this is the pattern that you see in the world. Derek Chauvin's actions were not isolated, we know that. And they're not even just isolated to the issue of racial prejudice. This is the way human power is corrupted all through the world. And as I flick through my newspaper, as I consider what's happening in the world at large, and I see the abuse of power all over the world, I see that Jesus is right. The human heart loves to dominate, loves to oppress, loves to crush and to brutally put down other people. Now the question then is why is Jesus pointing out this reality to his own disciples in answer to their request. Why is he, why is he drawing his, their attention to this reality? And I want to suggest to you that he's doing it as a warning. The disciples want the kind of power that they had seen their enemies possess. And of course, throughout the history of the Jews up to this point in the Gospels, they had been under the brutal oppression of the Egyptians The Canaanites and the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and more latterly the Romans through a succession of wicked enemies who had crushed them. And of course then, when we understand the request of James and John in view of the experiences of an oppressed people, then we have to recognize that what they're asking is for the same kind of power that their enemies had possessed And really their request comes from a desire to ape that or to replicate the power of the enemy. And so what Jesus is doing here when he says, this is how the Gentiles operate. This is what we see in the world around us. He's really trying to highlight the problem. He's trying to get to the root of it and show them that the same root of sin was in their own hearts. As existed in the hearts of their enemies. And therefore, he utters these words as a kind of warning. And we understand this because as Christians, we believe in the biblical doctrine of sin, which is that our problem is not isolated sins like racism or other kinds of sins. Our real problem is sin, singular, that lies at the root, the disease from which we are all suffering and are infected with. And the biblical doctrine of sin gives us great explanatory power for what happens in the world and why we see wickedness and injustice. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a man who suffered enormously under the Russian-Soviet rule and was put into one of the gulags in in Siberia. And he wrote, famously he wrote novels uh, like the Gulag Archipelago. And he said these lines which have resonated so deeply with many in his novel, The Gulag Archipelago, says the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. He was right. And this is what Jesus is pointing to when he says, this is what we see in the world. This way of modeling and exercising power and domination. This is, this is what we see in the world. And this is a warning to his own disciples. This is... This is because of sin. The reason why I'm stressing this is because it's so vital for us to believe in and accept the biblical doctrine of sin right now for two reasons. One is that it gives us the ability to understand what we're seeing in the world right now. And I want to suggest to you that it is inadequate for Christians to use secular language to describe this. It's inadequate for us to speak about to use a language of systemic racism, even though there's truth in that, or inadequate to use a language of white privilege, even if there's truth in that. Because the real root cause, the one that we really want to put our finger on, is what the Bible describes as sin. And this problem is as old as the world. It's not a new thing. You'll know that if you've read the book of Genesis, within just a few pages, as humankind fall into sin and away from grace... One of the first act, wicked acts we see is the brutal murder of an older brother killing his younger brother Cain, killing Abel. How is it possible for brother to hate brother? Never mind for there to be division across racial boundaries How is it for How is it possible for kin to despise kin? And the answer that the Bible shows us is this is how sin has so deeply infected us, and when Abel is murdered. The the, the scriptures tell us that his blood cried out from the ground. It cries out for justice. It cries out for healing. It cries out for the redemption of humankind and for God to set the world to rights. His blood cries out also for vengeance, which is why the New Testament says that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, Christ's blood calls out for reconciliation and healing and forgiveness. We have to see this, first of all, and understand This is what's happening in the world around us. We need to diagnose it accurately and understand this is sin. It's particular manifestation right now that we're witnessing is racism, but the root is there in all of us friends. And the reason why I stress that also is because then it helps. It forces us to look at our own hearts. Sin is not just a problem out there. It's not just a problem with the other. It's not just a problem with your enemy. Sin lives in you, it lives in me. When we understand that, then it enables us to overcome self-righteousness. Of course, one of the great concerns that we see in the world at large is how easy it is for people to wear the badge of righteousness, like I'm better than other people because I believe in this particular cause and you don't or you haven't spoken out on it. Friends, let's be wary of self-righteousness. Let's be humble before God, because the problem of sin in that heart exists in your heart also. And it also helps us understand this, that the same root, the root that is hatred, that the hatred that enabled Cain to kill Abel, that capacity exists in all of us. And I want to put it as strongly as this. It means this, that for a Christian, we understand that even if we hate Derek Chauvin, then we are only walking in his same steps. Christ calls us to a higher path. He calls us to love our enemies. The only way we can do that, the only possible way we can do that is to recognize that the root is sin and that it exists in me, it exists in you. Jesus diagnoses the problem. He warns his disciples, this is the problem. Friends, he then, let's move on to the second point. The second thing Jesus does here is he, dem- he shows his disciples what his answer is to that problem. And the answer that Christ gives is the formation of a new counter community in the world. Now, uh, you see this here when he says, you know that those who consider the rules of the Gentiles lord it over them and so on. And then verse 43, he says, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Now, this statement taken with all the other statements of Jesus and with the New Testament as a whole, we have to understand just how deeply political this statement is. What Jesus is doing here is he's lining up the nations and the institutions of the nations and saying, there's all the nations of the world practicing authority one way. And then he's saying, but then there's you. And in doing that, he is establishing the church on the same footing and in the same category as all the nations and institutions of the world. This is a new people, in other words. This is why we turn to a place like in 1 Peter 2 and understand our new identity as Christ, what the church actually is in its core identity. In 1 Peter 2, Peter tells these Christians from diverse places and different people groups and also distinct races, he calls them and says to them, but you, and this is your new identity, you are a chosen race. How interesting that it uses that word. It's not the obliteration of racial differences among us, but it's the recognition that we now submit to a higher identity, a new race within in Christ. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light now why am i stressing this why is it so important for us to grasp that christ's solution was the formation of a new nation within the nations of the world living under a different king and submitted to a higher rule why is that so important for us to grasp there's both a negative and a positive aspect to this the negative aspect is this that it shows us that our hope is not out there in the transformation of the political systems of this world. Our hope doesn't belong out there and that wasn't Christ's answer. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't care or engage with what's happening in the world at large. I believe that that is our call. But it's very clear that the early church who lived under the oppression of a brutal empire... That their hope was not so much in the transformation of that empire, but rather in the establishment of their new community. And we must never lose sight of this as Christians. And you ask why? Why is it? Why is this so? Why was this their their, their strategy and technique in their calling under Christ? Part of the answer is that we have to recognize as Christians that laws can't change hearts. The fact remains that the USA and Britain have a some of the most just laws that have ever existed in the history of the world, especially as it concerns uh, differences between peoples and laws that promote equality. You'll search in vain to find a more just legal systems than those. And yet we see the pervasive capacity of humans still to hate one another. Why? Because you cannot legislate against hatred. We try in vain with so-called hate crimes laws, but you can't change the human heart by imposing a legal standard. The Christian gospel is not that we are to march into the world with the rule book of Jesus and impose it on the world, because it cannot possibly change heart. We need a deeper solution than that. Think about it on this level. So often Christians speak about the mandate to bring about social justice. But you must understand that in the Bible the word for justice is the, word, the same word righteousness. And very often the language of social justice is reduced down to just a few, a few issues. But the biblical language of justice or of righteousness is much thicker, it's much richer, it's much grander. And it begins and ends with a submission to and the worship of the living God. There is no social justice outside of the worship of God. This is why in Micah 6.8, in that famous verse, which is beloved of many who just so feel these things deepen, as we all Christians ought to. he says in Micah 6.8 that he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The biblical mandate for righteousness in this world begins with the first commandment to love the Lord your God, to have no other God above him. That alone is the system which can give us the grounds and the foundation for bringing about peace and reconciliation among humans. Which is why as Christians we care passionately about race issues. But we also care about um, other aspects of our righteousness, that we embody the full picture of what is a righteous way of living. It touches our money. It touches our sex ethic. It touches every part of our lives. And here's the point I'm trying to communicate to you, friends. We want to see the kingdom of God come on earth. But you cannot have the kingdom without the king. Our real hope is is the rule and the sovereignty and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is where my deepest belief on this issue is that the Christian vision for social justice is the invitation to come under the rule of Jesus. To come under his gracious, kind rule. His capacity to bring peace on earth. You remember this passage in Isaiah 9, the promise of the coming of the Messiah. It says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Christian vision for social justice is to come, to come under the rule of Jesus, to experience his love. Now, if I can state this positively, when Jesus says to his disciples, this emphatic statement, but it shall not be so among you. I believe that what he's doing is he's casting the highest possible vision for what the church is called to live out in the world. We live under King Jesus. And we submit to his rule in every dimension of our lives. And our calling is nothing less than this weighty responsibility, which is to demonstrate what the kingdom looks like to a watching world. If we fall short of this in any issue, but right now the most pressing issue is in the issue of racism. If we fall short of this, we deny the gospel. The, church, the world ought to be able to look into the church and see within the church a miraculous unity of people. Our hope, friends, if I can be very clear, is not that we will force on the world a different way of living because it's impossible for the world to live God's way. Our hope is that we will model to the world an invitation to come and be part of God's kingdom. The New Testament says that judgment begins in the house of God. And if we're to apply that to the specific situation that we're confronted with and thinking about right now, what it means is this. The church must be a place where every man, woman, and child experiences the love of God, the grace of God, where the barriers that separate us that are natural barriers that come out in subconscious, unconscious ways are eroded and repented of so that the church fully images what Christ envisioned for his people. But it shall not be so among you, he said. This is his vision, the church. This brings us to the third element then. That the kingdom counter community seeks to embody the love of God. Now look again at what he says when he describes to them how the church should function and operate. He says it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What, how are we to understand what he's saying here? What does he, Christ want the church to be like? And the answer is that he wants his people to walk in the way of love. The kingdom ethic, if it's to be summarized in one word, is the ethic of love to love one another, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's what in the book of James, James describes as the royal law. Because it's, he's saying that it's the law to rule all laws. This is the way the church operates. We live in and embody the love of God. And the only way that it is possible for Christians to fully live out the love of God in the community of the church is because of what Christ has done for us and bringing us from all diverse people groups and situations in life into unity in him. This is what Galatians 3.28 says. It says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul of course is, is drawing the lines there. Among the major divisions that existed among people in the Roman Empire at the time. Jew and Gentile, slave free, male female, and the way that there was privilege granted to different groups in different ways. And what he's not speaking about there is the obliteration of differences. It wasn't that you were no longer Jew or no longer Gentile. It's not that you're no longer white or no longer black. It's not that you're no longer male or no longer female. These differences are celebrated in the Bible and upheld as God-given distinctives and realities about who he's made you and how you're precious in his sight. But the biblical answer is that we experience deep unity across these boundaries because we all come through the same narrow gate. We all come through The work of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying for our sins. To get through this particular gate, you have to unburden yourselves of your pride, of your self-righteousness. For some, that's the pride and self-righteousness that exists because of your status and privilege in this world. And for others, it's the exact opposite. It's because of your underprivilege and and the fact that you, you have an inverted pride. And all of it is leveled when you come into the kingdom. We have to get rid of it all. And we all come through the exact same road into the city of God. We come by the blood of Jesus, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us. Which means that when you gather with the people of God, you cannot distinguish one from another and say he's better than her or or, that person's better than that person. Because we all came in by the same road and we are all held by the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means there is no place for pride or division within the church of God. Now, this drastically affects our view of how power and privilege functions within the kingdom. It's not that these things are bad in and of themselves. The biblical language is to speak of being blessed. But when God blesses you with resources or position or opportunity or gifts or talents or any of these things, when God blesses you with those things, Jesus is being very clear here about what they are for. They're given to you on trust so that you can serve others. So you can go to a lower place. This applies, of course, to the privilege that you may experience on account of racial difference. But it applies to every other privilege that we experience. Some of you are from wealth. Some of you are from having immense natural talents. Some of you have opportunities that have opened to you that haven't opened to another person. Whatever it is that God puts in your hands, Jesus is saying here, use it to serve Use it to become the slave of all. Anything less than that is falling short of a right stewardship of the privileges and the blessings that God has poured on your life. What is the aim? The aim is that we model God's way on earth, this way of love. When in John 13, just before Jesus is crucified, He says to his disciples, and these words must have rung in their minds. He says, this is how all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. And I believe, I am so passionately convicted of this, that this is the greatest need in the world right now. That the unbelieving world should look at the church and not see a church that is divided or bickering or disagreeing about politics, or, dis- or, 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 or black congregations worshipping here and white congregations worshipping here. I believe that Christ's mandate was that the world should be able to look in on the church and see something that is miraculous. They'll see, this is how they know that you are my disciples, that all of you love one another. Because there's no ex- other explanatory power for why Christians love one another except for the gospel. The world should be able to look at that and say, this is astonishing. This is remarkable. This is supernatural. This is why, friends, when we preach, we preach hard truths. (sighs) Because we are not content with producing consumers in a church. The biblical call is for disciples. The biblical call is for people to walk in Christ's steps and Christ was, uh, he modeled to us love. This is why we keep having to preach hard truths that our lives will more and more be conformed to, to the image of Christ. This is why we're not content to accept mere attendance among the people of God. That's not what a church is but rather to form community in which the bonds of love bind us to one another, in which we give and receive love in a thousand different ways every single week of our lives within the church of God. Anything less than that is falling far short of Christ's vision. It shall not be so among you, but then he lays out for us the way of love. The way that the church models to the world something extraordinary, something radical and something different. The last thing I want to show you from these verses is that this new community is only possible because of the gospel. This is how Christ ends and crowns his statement to his disciples. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is something remarkable about what Christians believe, which is so unique among world faiths. We believe in a savior who experienced the most violent oppression in order to deliver us from our bondage and slavery to sin and to Satan. In Isaiah 53, it's described vividly and it says this, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus is the only truly innocent man who's ever lived. And yet he was subjected to the brutal domination, the lording it over the oppression of human rulers. He was oppressed. And this means, friends, that if you have ever experienced oppression, be it racial or any other kind, you have a savior who understands. You have a savior who has walked that path and drunk that cup down to the very dregs you have a savior who was subjected to the wickedness of men so that he could redeem us from it. And this is what he says. He says that the son of man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that must have resonated so powerfully with vast swathes of the Roman empire who heard these words and understood that it meant them. Because the only hope, For them, so many of whom were slaves, was that their life would one day be ransomed. A ransom payment, manumission, the deliverance from slavery, or the deliverance from being a prisoner of war. That's where this language comes from. and This is what the language that Jesus uses. He's saying that all of us live under the bondage, the slavery to our own sins and to the rule of Satan. That is the systems that exist in this world. But Christ has ransomed you out of it. He's brought you into this new community, this new people, and he's made you his own. He's brought you under his rule. What do we do then when we see this wickedness around us in the world? Three things. I believe that this now more than ever is a call to work harder To be the church that God wants us to be. To love one another. It isn't any more complicated than that, but it is as impossible and as hard as that. Which means that the Christian life, as Martin Luther says, is one of repentance. Constant repentance. We've got to repent and love. Repent and love. Repent and love. If you've found that anger and division has crept into your hearts with another person in the church even recently, repent of it. Be reconciled or else we're as guilty as the world is. The second thing we do is we live out this life in our interface with the world, which is to say that the church is not so much called to impose Christ's law, Christ's righteousness, Christ's justice in the systems of this world, but we are called to model it. We're called to be salt and light, which means that we do that through our words, through the speaking of truth, Not just on race issues, but yes on those issues right now. But also on every other area of truth and of the sin and the wickedness that we see in the world around us. Not in a way that calls out judgment, because as you know, we start from the core conviction, we are sinners. But we preach the truth of Christ and we model it in a way that is salt and light in the world around us. So that when people come into contact with your life, when they come into contact with you and, and the church, the salty taste of what they experience lives with them. And they think this is different. This isn't like the anger that we're seeing in the world. This isn't like the superiority and the pride and the defensiveness that we're seeing in the world. This is something different. This is the rule of Christ. This is the gracious, peaceful rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation. And I think our third calling at a time like this is that we are here to rescue the ransomed. We cannot lose sight of this as our priority. Our hope for the world is not that the world's laws will become more and more just. Our hope for the world is that the people who experience wickedness and oppression in this world will hear the invitation of Christ to come under his gracious rule and to know that they have been counted as of as much worth as the blood of Christ is worth because he spilled it for them and be invited to come under his kingdom and to be part of it. Friends, we are not surprised when we see things like we've seen on the news recently because ever since the beginning of the world, this kind of wickedness has been perpetrated one man against another. This is sin. This is what Christ came to deal with. We grieve it. We mourn. We lament. We feel sorry for it. But we are not surprised. Why? Because we know our own hearts. But our greatest call right now is that we're spurred on. To repent and to love and to be the people of God. To be a window into the kingdom of God and the rule of King Jesus the invitation to be part of his great movement. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we want to come to you with humble hearts. We want to come to you in confession and in repentance and to acknowledge that Lord, we know that you loved us despite our wickedness, not because of our goodness. And Lord, I pray that now more than ever you'll show the root sins that the sin that lives in in our own hearts and that must continually be repented of so that we'll more and more conform to the image of Christ. I pray specifically, Lord, that you'll root out. Racism and racist attitudes within us. But along with it, Lord, I pray you'll remove hatred and bitterness. I pray you'll remove judgment. I pray you'll remove pride. All these ways that sin manifests within us and brings about division. And I ask, Lord, it's my passion. It's my desire. I ask as a pastor that, Lord, the church that we are seeking to build together as a family will increasingly mirror your kingdom rule. That where you grant power, where you grant privilege, it will be for the purpose of serving. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we have a model of this. We have one who laid aside his glory, his position of majesty in heaven to take on human flesh and to go to the cross and to serve us. We have one who was willing to suffer the abuse of proud and wicked men who cursed him and said that he was a glutton and a drunkard because he associated with the evil so-called sinners of the cities in which he moved and ministered. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are willing to associate with the lowly. To take on yourself the garb of human flesh and of poverty and of disadvantage and even of prejudice. He's just a northerner. He's just from Nazareth. He's just a Jew. You're willing to absorb the prejudices of men. And ultimately to subject yourself to the oppression of wicked rulers. When you went to the cross. But you did all that for us. You did all that to break down the power of sin in our own lives. And to smash the divisions that divide one man against his brother. To undo the wickedness of Cain. and To begin to bring about healing in the nations. Which begins in your people, the church. And we thank you for the miracle that is the church. I thank you that when we gather together on Sundays which is not reflected right now in this online streaming. I thank you that when we gather together on Sundays, we gather with people from all over the world. We gather with people who have different mother tongue than mine. But we gather under the banner of the King Jesus, our Savior. And we come to experience the peace of God. We come to experience the grace of God. We come to identify as one people saved under one Savior. one, One law, the law of love and one saving power, the power of the gospel. Bring your grace to bear in our situation. Bring your healing to people who are feeling grief right now and the brokenness, the depression of what's happening in the world at large. Give us perspective. Give us an adequate doctrine of sin to be able to understand, okay, this is, this is to be expected. This is nothing more than what Jesus said existed then and will exist for all time until Christ comes to, to rule and to reign. But may we yearn, may we pray with the early church, Maranatha, our Lord, come quickly. Thank you that that was their response to the wickedness that they saw around them. They just got on their knees and said, come, Lord, quickly. Maranatha. We pray, come, Lord, quickly. Come and bring healing where there's brokenness in our world. Come and bring, mend our own hearts. Come, Lord, quickly. Come and bring the gracious rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it, Lord. May the increase of his government and of peace May there be no end to that. We love you, Lord. Let's worship, friends. Let's worship. Amen.